The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the chapter which we read at the beginning, namely the 24th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and taking verses 14, 15, and 16. Verses 14, 15, and 16 in the 24th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and of hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense, toward God and toward men. Now here, as you remember, in this uh, chapter, we have one of these great uh, dramatic incidents in the life and ministry of this honored servant of God, the Apostle Paul. And uh, what we find here is the Apostle Paul on trial. There are many similar scenes, as you know, in this book of the Acts. But this is the particular one that we are looking at this evening. The apostle is on trial. The apostle is in trouble. Certain charges are being brought against him. He had some very bitter enemies. People who didn't hesitate to call him a most pestilent fellow. This great and mighty apostle to the Gentiles. He was nothing to them but a pestilent fellow whom they were anxious to get rid of and to put to death. And here they are, bringing their charge before him. And they're addressing the Roman governor, Felix. These opponents of his, as you remember, had hired a kind of hack orator called Tertullus to put their case. And he states his case with a great deal of rhetorical flourish to cover over the deficiencies in the case that he had to present to them. And then after he had spoken, the Apostle Paul replies, not through another person, but he speaks for himself. And uh, what is of interest to us this evening is to notice the way in which he presented his defense. There were two sets of charges brought against him. The one uh, had reference to his conduct and to his behavior. It was being suggested that he was a cause of trouble, that he was a cause of insurrection, that he had caused a tumult and a riot, that he was a dangerous man speaking politically, a breaker of the law, a violator of the customs of the Jews. So that aspect of the case was presented by Tertullus, that it behoved him to listen to what he had got to say on behalf of his clients because as the man who was ultimately responsible for the, to the imperial government in Rome for uh, the state of affairs in the land of Palestine. Indeed, it was not only his duty, but it would be wise for him to pay attention to what uh, they were saying. Because this man they maintained by acts and actions was thus an instigator of trouble. Then the other part of the charge was the message which uh, he had been preaching. 
There are the two charges. Now, it's interesting, I say, to watch the defense of the apostle. Because uh, he, like the prosecution, divides his defense also into the two sections. With regard to these charges that he had been causing trouble and uh, leading to tumult and confusion, he gives a blank denial. He says that they have no evidence at all, that he'd only been in Jerusalem for 12 days, and that he'd gone up on a very charitable purpose, and that he had done none of these things whatsoever that were being suggested by the prosecution. He's entirely free from all such charges. Not only had he not raised an argument or a discussion, he had gone out of, out of his way to placate the Jews. He had done everything that was in his power to be a law-abiding citizen. And he challenges them to produce their evidence. They failed to produce the material witnesses. And he indicates that to them. That is his then reply to this charge that he is a disturber of the peace and a man who is likely to be dangerous from the standpoint of Roman government and law and order. And then he comes to the second matter. And that is what he refers to in this 14th verse. But, he says, having said, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me, but this I do confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, etc. In other words, he comes here now to this charge concerning his message. And there, there is no denial at all. There is no attempt to refute what they say. He accepts their words in this respect. He stands by them. Indeed, he makes it perfectly clear that uh, he would sooner meet death than recant what he had been teaching or withdraw it in any respect. He not only admits that he has said these things, he glories in the fact that he has said them. He stands by them. Well, now then, I'm calling your attention to it, you see, for this uh, very reason. That in saying this and in putting his defense in that form, the great apostle gives us a very wonderful statement as to what the Christian message, the Christian faith, rarely is. You see, he's in trouble because of this preaching of this message. If he hadn't preached that, he would never have been arrested. He had been a Pharisee, a typical Pharisee, a very well-known, able Pharisee, one who had excelled over all others in his knowledge of the law and all the matters in which the Pharisees were trained. And if he'd gone on like that, he would have been the last man to be arrested and charged in this particular way and manner. He's in trouble, he's on trial, for one reason only, and that is that he'd become a Christian, and that he was preaching this Christian message. And here in his reply he says, well now, I confess this, I admit this, this is what they say about me. And their description of me, he says, is in its essence true. So he repeats what it is he'd been preaching, what it is he stands for, in order that he might enlighten them as to the content of the Christian message, the Christian faith. And my reason, as I say, for calling your attention to it this evening is that it does uh, present us with the most succinct and perfect 
summary and epitome of the Christian message. Now, my friends, what better could we do on an Easter Sunday evening such as this? Then remind ourselves as to what is the essential message of the Christian faith. There's a lot of confusion in the world today about this, isn't there? You hear on the wireless the news that people are crowding into churches on this day. I wonder whether they all know why they're doing it. Do they know what Christianity means? Well, I don't want to be offensive, but I'm prompted to ask the question for this reason. That if people only go to the place of worship, the house of God, on this one day only every year, I draw the conclusion that they don't know why they go on that one day. For if they knew why they should go today, they'd go every Sunday. A man who really understands this doesn't only do it once a year. This is something that he wants to be doing the whole time. This is nothing which comes to him as just a duty or a task, that he just gets his name ticked off once a year. No, no. This is life to him. It's everything as it was to the Apostle Paul. Well, very well then, I say, let the Apostle remind us as to what this essential Christian message really is. Now then, he tells us certain things about it. The first thing he tells us is this. That it is a very clear message. It's a very specific message. That there is really no difficulty about knowing what Christianity really is and what it stands for and what it proclaims. Now, let me show you that. Take, for instance, what Tertullus says about it. Even Tertullus, you know, understood a little bit about this. Listen to what Tertullus says. Let me read verse 5 to you. This is a part of his charge. We have found this man, he says, a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. Oh, that was wrong, but this is right. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The sect of the Nazarenes. You see the importance of that term. This man, he says, is a ringleader of that new sect, the Nazarenes. And at once he's telling us that Christianity is something that can be defined. It's a sect. And it is something that is believed by this particular sect. It's the sect of the Nazarenes. These Nazarenes, he's saying, believe something that the vast majority of Jews don't believe and nobody else believes it. Until a few years ago, he's saying, there was no such thing as this sect of the Nazarenes. But here it is now and this is one of the ringleaders. And these people, they've got some certain strange beliefs. And they meet together uh, because of these beliefs. And they sing about them and they preach about them. And they talk to one another about them. The sect of the Nazarenes. It's something discreet. It's something that can be defined. It is something which is circumscribed. But you see, the apostle takes up this point and... Uh, he uh, agrees, as I say, with his accuser, Tertullus. Uh, here he is uh, saying uh, here that I confess this, he says, I confess unto thee, that after the way, the manner, which they call heresy, that's again schism or a sect. You notice his terms, he says, I, I admit this, that uh, I worship the God of my fathers in a particular way. 
It's a, a way they don't like. They call it a heresy. Well, now you notice his terms. It is a way. It is a particular way. The Jews uh, thought they were worshipping God in their way. Now, here's a man who worships God in another way. Well, very well. If you begin to talk about another, it means that you must have some standard of judgment. It must mean that you know what they did, and therefore what he did. You can't say the two things are different unless you know what they are. The moment you begin to say this and that, this way, that way, well, it means that you know something about this way and something about that way. In other words, both can be defined. And when you add this word heresy to it, which means again a division, a sect or a schism, something which is wrong. Yes, says Paul, I admit this, I confess this. But after the way which they say is absolutely wrong and heretical, which is false and which they hate, I worship the God of my fathers. Well now then, these terms are surely of the greatest possible importance. I simply want to use them this evening uh, to enforce this particular point. Christianity is something that can be defined. It is not just a vague attitude which eludes definition, which eludes precise statements. Now, I'm emphasizing that for one reason only. That the whole climate of opinion in the world today, and alas in the Christian church, is to deny this very thing. And is to say that Christianity is something that cannot be defined. Ah, they say you can't define Christianity. They say if you you try to do so, it's just because you're a legalist. You've got that sort of mind. Christianity, they say, it just cannot be defined at all. It's just a spirit. It's a kind of spirit which you catch. You can't put it in propositions. You can't say this is it and that isn't it. No, no, they say. You mustn't do that. You mustn't be petty. You mustn't be narrow. If a man's a good man, he's a Christian. If a man's anxious to put an end to war, he must be a Christian. If a man is horrified at these bombs, he must be a Christian, especially if he protests against these things. So you get these strange conglomerations of people marching along the roads together, some of them communists, some of them avowed, open rationalists and scoffers against Christianity and others calling themselves Christians all together. All of one spirit, you see. Oh, they say you can't define Christianity. You mustn't say that a man must believe this, and that if he believes that, he's wrong. Oh, they say we've outgrown all that. People used to talk about theology and doctrine. That's all wrong, they say. What makes a man a Christian? Well, if he's like Christ, if he lives a life of sacrifice, if he does good, if he's kind and gentle, that makes him Christian. And there are many people who not only believe that, but are like that. You go to them and say, now look here, why do you call yourself a Christian? They don't quite know. You see, they've always been brought up to this, and they'd like to see the world a better place. And then that to them is Christianity. This is the common notion today, that Christianity is something that cannot be defined. And so, you see, uh, it's against what we read here, this sect of the Nazarenes, this way, this heresy. It's a complete contradiction of that. I remember reading a book by a man 
And he gave it a very imposing title a few years ago. He called it Ultimate Questions. And then you read the book and this is what you found. That Christianity is something so wonderful that it cannot be defined. And he'd got a great illustration. You see, he said it's something so beautiful. You can't put it into words. You can't analyze, he says, things which are really beautiful. He'd got a wonderful picture of a man who'd been told that if he got to the top of a certain high mountain, he'd see a view there such as he'd never seen in his life before. From the top of that mountain, there was a wonderful panorama stretching ahead, glorious, and the man said he'd like to see it. So one morning he set out early. He walked along the roads and got to the secondary roads and then to the by-roads. Eventually he finished with roads and he was walking across fields. Then he came to the foot of the mountain and he began to climb. And the sun began to shine and he began to get tired. But no, no, he went on. He wanted to see this view, the panorama. Up he went and at last it got so steep that he had to go down on his hands and knees. He was scaling crags and rocks and his knees and his hands were bleeding. Doesn't matter. He wants to see the view and at last he arrives at the top. And there, stretching before him, is this wonderful panorama, this extraordinary scenery. What does he do about it? Does he go home, says this man, to analyze it and to put it down as a number of propositions? One, two, three, four, it's this and it isn't that? Nonsense, says the man. He just stands on top of the mountain with his eyes and his mouth wide open, speechless. What? The magnificence of the scenery. I can imagine him, says the author of the book, dancing in enjoyment. I can imagine him bursting forth into song. But the one thing I cannot imagine is doing, he says, is to sit down and put it down as a number of propositions. This is right, that's wrong. Ridiculous, he says. Christianity is too big for that. You can't say what it is and what it isn't. You know you feel it or else you don't feel it. Some strange mystical experience. That's Christianity. Well, all I say is this, that if that is Christianity, the Apostle Paul would never have been arrested. He was arrested because he was a ringleader of the sect, the sect of the Nazarenes. He was a man who was guilty, they said, of heresy. They've got a standard of judgment, and the Apostle agrees entirely. He says, they're quite right. I am in this position and not in their position. It is something that can be defined and circumscribed. Now I'm calling your attention to this on this Easter Sunday. You know there are some very funny things happening in this modern world. There are people who hold the, views, the view of Christianity I've just been describing to you. And yet every Sunday they get up in their churches and they recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. Well, what are these creeds? Well, do you know what they are? They're definitions. They're a series of propositions. Born under Pontius Pilate. Dead, buried, risen again. What are they? Definitions. This is what makes a man a Christian. And every confession of faith that the church has ever drawn up has been nothing but that. You see, before the Protestant Reformation, people didn't quite know what they believed, but the moment the Protestant Reformation came, people knew exactly what they believed. And what they did was to draw up their definitions. What are they? Well, there's one of them, the 39 Articles of the Church of England. You probably read many of you an article by a great dignitary in the Church of England the other day, agitating for a new 
new kind of articles why he doesn't believe these. He is still a dignitary of the church, you see, but he doesn't believe what he claims to believe and what he's pledged himself to believe and to preach. Thirty-nine articles, what are they? Well, they're here to tell us what to believe, what not to believe. Definitions. They say, this is Christianity, that isn't Christianity. That the Church of Rome is wrong, this is right. That's what you mean by your thirty-nine articles. And they say you can't define Christianity. And think of the great Westminster Confession of Faith. Growing up there in Westminster Abbey, in that great conference that met for almost three years in order to hammer out these definitions. What for? Well, that the common people of this land might know what to believe and what not to believe. The Westminster Confession of Faith. In other words, the church in every period of revival and reformation always knows exactly what she believes. And my dear friends, the world is as it is tonight. And the church is as she is tonight for the reason that people don't know what they believe. They say, I'm a Christian. You say, what do you mean? They say, I don't know. Well, we must know. Oh, yes, says the Apostle Paul. To that extent, this man Tertullus is right. This I do confess. That after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and in the prophets, and of hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection from the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. This, he says, is what I do believe. This is what I have done. I have preached this. I believe this. I stand by this. Do what you like to me. Well, what is this? Well, let's look at his definition of Christianity this evening. I only want to hold the elements of it before you. The first thing you notice that it includes is this is a belief in God. A belief in God. So worship I the God of my fathers. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe in God. I don't care how good a man is. I don't care how wonderful his life. I don't care how tender and kind and loving his personality. If he doesn't believe in and worship God, he's not a Christian. I worship the God of my fathers. This is common ground to the Jews who are accusing Paul and Paul himself. They all believed in God. The apostle is constantly making that point as he went round preaching. Whenever he preached to Jews, he had no need to stay with this point. It was common ground. They believed in God, the God of our fathers. The pagans didn't. They were worshipping idols, gods of their own imagination and their own creation. And Paul had to turn upon them and say, don't waste your time in worshipping these vanities any longer. Turn away from them. There is only one true and living God. Do you believe in God, my friend? God the Creator. The God who exists from eternity to eternity, the great I Am. The God who made everything that is. The God who reigns over all. 
Yes, but you notice that he says that God is to be worshipped. God is to be obeyed. There is nothing I admit that so alarms me and frightens me as when a man says to me, of course I believe in God, I've always believed in God. I don't think a man who believes in God speaks like that about him. To believe in God is to believe in one who dwells in a light that is unapproachable, whom no man has ever seen or can see. The Lord of the universe, the creator of the ends of the earth, God in all his glory and majesty and eternity. You read this book and you'll find that some people have been given some vague intimation of his presence and his nearness. And you know what happens to them? They fall down before him. Isaiah the prophet was given such a vision and he cries out saying, Woe is unto me for I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone, he says. He can't stand in the presence of this God. God is to be worshipped. God is to be obeyed. The Christian is a man who believes that. Let me hurry on. After the way which they call heresy, says the apostle, so worship I the God of my fathers. Now that's, that's an interesting addition, isn't it? What's it mean? The God of my fathers. He's referring to the Jews. Paul was a Jew, and the Jews were the accusers at this point. Now he says, here again we've got common ground. I have always worshipped the God that they've worshipped, the God of my fathers. Oh, but what a pregnant statement that is. What's he mean by that? He means this. God is not merely that great and eternal being about whom I've been speaking so unworthily. God has not only made and created the world as a watchmaker might make a watch, winds it up and then puts it down and lets it carry on itself. No, no. God is a God who intervenes. God of my fathers. What fathers? Well, the first of them was Abraham. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What Paul is saying is this, I not only believe in God, I believe in the God revealed in the Old Testament. You notice how he goes on to put it. He says here that he has always believed all things which are written in the law, the books of Moses, and the prophets, the remainder, if you like, of the Old Testament. I've always believed that, says Paul. And what an important addition it is. Because, you see, it means this. He believes that this great and everlasting and eternal God, the creator of all things that are and the sustainer of everything, is a God who has intervened in life and in this world. He believes that God created everything at the beginning. Always believed that. He believed that men had fallen and had sinned and rebelled against God and had brought his world into trouble. Yes, but he says, I worship the God of my fathers. And that means this, that at a given point in time, God had looked upon a man called Abram, who lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and he'd said to this man, come, get up, come out. I want to send you to a land that you know nothing about. I'm going to turn you into a nation. 
I'm going to use you and the nation that will come out of your lines as a means of blessing to all the nations of the world. God of my fathers, God of Abram, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the God who appeared to Abram. There he was uh, without a child from Sarah, his wife, Abram, age 99, Sarah, over 90. And God said, Sarah is going to conceive and bear a son. This is the one through whom I'm going to send my Messiah, God of my fathers. He believed that. He'd always believed it and taught it. God creating a nation for himself. What for? Well, in order to give a revelation of himself, in order to bear witness of himself. All the nations of the world had fallen away from God. They didn't know God. They believed in gods in stones and in trees, spirits in animals, and they believed in the sun and the moon and the stars. There were their gods. No, no, says God, I'm going to raise up a nation and a people to bear witness and testimony unto me that I alone am God and that there's none other. I will speak to them. I will reveal myself and God of my fathers. He believes that. And it's a very important addition, my friends. This man, the Apostle Paul, believed the Old Testament, you see. He believed the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all the historical books and the Psalms and the prophets. He said these are the living oracles of God. God gave them to our fathers. He didn't give them to the other nations. He gave them to us. He believes in revelation. He doesn't believe, in other words, that a man finds out about God by thinking and about re by reasoning and by using his own mind. He, he doesn't say, now this is the God that I believe in, a God who is entirely a God of love. I don't believe that God could have any wrath in him. I don't believe in a God of justice. I don't believe in a God who sat on Mount Sinai. No, no. The God I believe in is a wonderful God of love who smiles indiscriminately upon everybody. That isn't the God that Paul believed in. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's one of the leaders of the Christian church. He believes in the God of our fathers, this God that has revealed himself. What he's saying is this. All that I know about God is what God has revealed concerning himself. I've always believed it. I've accepted it. He's a God who's concerned about men. He's a God who's intervened in the affairs of men. I believe that. I've always believed it. The Christian believes that. Then let me hurry on. This revelation, I say, what is it? Well, he divides it up for us. All things that are written in the law and the prophets. The law. The Apostle Paul, is he believed in the Ten Commandments. That there's only one God and that we are not to bow down before anybody or anything else. That we are not to take the name of this God in vain, nor take his day in vain. He believed that God had said, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. He wasn't too clever and too sophisticated to believe things like that, like people are today. And say that if a man's tired of his wife, let him have another. Or if he finds he's made a mistake, let him spit upon it and go on. No, no, he said, God has said... He believed the law, that a man must not even covet his neighbor's wife or any of his neighbor's possessions. He believed the law, the whole of the law. 
He believed, in other words, that God had revealed there his own holy character. That he had called Moses up unto the mount and had said, Moses, I want you to go down and tell the people what I am and what I'm like. I am God. Tell them this. I am holy and I am to be worshipped as a holy God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. You are my people. Live like this, therefore. The God who had revealed his character, his holiness. Yes, but not only his holiness, but his righteousness. The God who had revealed that he is the judge of men. And so he had told Moses about offering sacrifices. Have you read those books? Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, all about burnt offerings and sacrifices. It was God who told Moses all about it. And he said, you go down now and build an ark, build a temple, build a tabernacle according to the measurement. See that thou do all things according to the pattern shown thee on the mount. He gave him the detailed instructions and measurements, told them what animals they were to offer, how they were to present the blood. God told Moses that. Moses did it. Paul believed it. But what does it all tell us? Well, what he tells us is not only about the holy character of God, but that God wants us to be holy also. And that if we are not, he will punish us. That he is a judge eternal. And that there is only one way whereby we can be reconciled to him, and that is by offering blood to him, taking a sacrifice into his holy presence. Oh yes, I've always believed in the God of my fathers. I've always worshipped him, says Paul. I believe in his teaching about the way men are to live. And my friends, it's here still this evening. That is how God wants all of us to live. Ten commandments, moral law, and not only the law, but the prophets. What have these said? Well, says the apostle, these prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow. The prophets have written, and what have they written about? Well, the prophets were concerned to give the people a true view of the law of God. You see, they, some of them had got a wrong view of the law of God. Some of them were saying, all oh, right, doesn't matter what you do. If you do fall into sin and so on, all you need do is to take your burnt offering or sacrifice to the temple next Sunday, and all will be well. So carry on in sin, they said, then take your offering, like so many of us do, you see. We do wrong, then we give a good donation to a good cause. We feel it's balanced. Or we go and confess to some priest so-called, and we think we're all right. No, no, we balance good with evil. That's what they'd been doing. The prophets arose, sent by God, and they said, look here. You can't buy God. God's not interested in your burnt offerings and sacrifices if that's the spirit in which you take them. God wants... A pure heart, God wants repentance. God wants honesty. And he can't be bought in this manner. The prophets, they taught that. But they taught something more wonderful, and it was this. They said that though this people had so sinned against God, that God in his love was going to send them a deliverer, a messiah. Someone was going to come who was the representative of God, and he would deliver the people. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Why? Well, there's a great king coming. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Make straight in the wilderness the highway. Of who? Of your God. All flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. The prophets all said that in different ways. They were looking for the coming one. A hope, he says, and a hope toward God, which they themselves also allow. And the hope is the coming of the Messiah. They were all looking for, so was I, says Paul. I've always done that. I've always worshipped the God of my fathers in this way. And then you notice the last thing he mentions is that there is to be a resurrection of the dead. Both of the just and the unjust. And a hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, says Paul, I am, I confess, I acknowledge it, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, as they call us. I, I admit that, uh, according to the way which they describe as heresy, I am worshipping the God of my fathers, and I believe that there is to be a resurrection of the dead, just and unjust. I believe it, says Paul. This, you see, is an essential part of the belief of a Christian. Paul is giving us here items, one, two, three, four, of what a Christian believes. This is what I stand for, he said. And this is one of them, my friends, that there is to be a resurrection of the dead. And of all the dead, both the just and the unjust. That every person who has ever died in this world or whoever will die shall rise again in the body. And stand before God. I believe it, says Paul. I've always believed it. They believe it. They're with me there. We're on common ground, says the apostle. Resurrection of the dead. Both of the just and the unjust. The whole world will stand before God. Men and women will rise out of their graves. And those who are drowned in the sea, they'll all rise and they'll stand at that great day before God, there is a judgment, a last judgment, a final judgment, and the whole of humanity will stand before God, just and unjust. Those who have believed in God and who have lived to please him, and those who haven't believed in him and who have never thought of please, they'll all rise together and stand before God. That is what I believe, says Paul. My friends, shall I ask you a simple question? Do you believe all that? Are you a Christian? Well, if you're a Christian, you must believe all this. Here's an authority speaking. Here is this mighty apostle to the Gentiles, the men who planted more churches than anybody else, the men who brought this gospel first to this continent of Europe. Here is the mighty apostle of God, and this is what he believes. He believes in God. He worships him. He serves him. God of the fathers. The whole story of God's action through the Jews. The making of the Jews. What he did with them. He believes it all. Believes the Old Testament. Believes the law as an expression of God's character and God's will for men. Believes in the prophets and their teaching. Believes in the resurrection. Do you? You can't be a Christian unless you believe these things. 
This is what I believe, says Paul. They're right. That's what I stand for. That's what I've been preaching. Do you believe it, my friend? As you sit in that seat there in this chapel this evening, do you believe that one day you will be standing in the presence of this eternal God? you believe that? Is your life governed and determined by that thought? You can't serve God unless it is. Do you really believe that? Have you visualized yourself there? Resurrected. Risen. Death is not the end. The grave is not the end. Put your tombstones on it. Put tons upon it. It doesn't matter. It will all be moved. You'll rise. Resurrection of the just and the unjust. And standing before God giving an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Christian, you call yourself a Christian? Do you believe that? Is, are these the things by which you live? Are these the things to which you hold? Are these the things which you proclaim? The apostle says, I believe all these things. Will you be surprised if I now go on to say this? That so far I haven't started presenting to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I haven't come to Christianity yet. What the apostle is saying here is this. I have held this as they have. This is common ground. The Jews who were persecuting Paul would hire Tertullus to bring the charge against him. They believed all those things, every one of them. That's not Christianity. That's the introduction to Christianity. That's Judaism. That's the Jews' religion. Every Orthodox Jew tonight believes all that. There were some, I know, the Sadducees and others who no longer believed in resurrection. They'd gone astray. But the Pharisees, the real men who understood all this, they believed in all this and they taught it and preached it. This is common ground. This isn't Christianity. I haven't come to it. What is Christianity then? Well, I can tell you very briefly and very simply. Do you know, my dear friends, if the Apostle Paul had only believed what I've been saying up until this moment, he wouldn't have been a prisoner. He wouldn't have been on trial. Why? Well, he'd just have been a typical representative Jew. He would still have been the Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he preached and taught all that I've said. That isn't what makes a man a Christian. You can believe in God and not be a Christian. You can believe in the Ten Commandments and not be a Christian. You can be a moral man and not be a Christian. You can be a highly religious man and not be a Christian. You can believe your Old Testament, every word of it, and not be a Christian. You can believe that there is life after death and not be a Christian. You can believe in the resurrection and not be a Christian. You can believe in the last judgment and not be a Christian. What is it that makes a man a Christian? Oh, that he belongs to the sect of the Nazarenes. Tertullus knew what he was talking about. This man, he says, is not only a pestilent fellow, but he is a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. This is the thing that makes a man a Christian and separates him even from the Jews. What's it mean? Well, it's something that you can define, my friend. 
It's this, you see, it's all about this Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. It's all about him. And what was it? Well, this says, Paul, I admit it, I confess it, that after the way that they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. Again, he says in verse 21, except it be for this one vice that I cried, standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. What is Christianity? It's this. It's about this Jesus, about this Nazarene. It means that you've left something else and have believed in him and have gone after him. What do you believe? I'll give you my headings there, these. It is to believe first and foremost that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and the hope of the Jews. You know, says Paul, I have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow. They've read their prophets and they know that the prophets are saying that a Messiah is to come. Do you know the difference between me and them, said Paul to Felix? It's this. They say he's still to come. I say he's come. Jesus, the Nazarene. The Messiah, long promised. But why did he say that he'd come? Ah, here is the essential message of Christianity. It had been proved by the resurrection that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's not surprising that Paul puts it like that here. In writing his letter subsequently to the Romans, he puts it like this. He says that he's been called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Here it is. You see, these first preachers, these apostles of Jesus Christ, they went round the world preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This was their message. They said, you know, this Jesus whom we followed, we thought he was a great prophet. He made some extraordinary statements. He claimed that he was the Son of God. He worked miracles such as we'd never seen before. We couldn't understand him. And yet we did begin to believe that he was the coming Messiah. But you know, they said he was taken. And they tried him and they condemned him and they crucified him and he didn't seem to have any power to resist. And we saw him nailed to a tree and he died and they buried him in a grave. We had thought that it had been he that was the deliverer, but he's dead. And we were utterly dumbfounded and disconsolate and dejected. And we were gathered together when suddenly certain women who'd been watching at the tomb came running and bursting in upon us and said, The tomb is empty. It's not there. We didn't believe them. We thought they were talking idle tales. But we went, two of us went, Peter and John went to see. And there we found they were right. The grave was empty. He wasn't there. And he's appeared to us. We were in a room together. We'd bolted the doors and shut the windows because of the Jews. And suddenly he came amongst us and stood there and said, Look at me. And he sat down and he ate broiled fish 
and a honeycomb. He said, don't be afraid of me, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a phantom. I'm not some materialization of some spiritual body. I'm flesh and bones before you. I'm risen in the body from the grave. I'm giving you proof of it. And we realize that he was the Son of God. He'd always said that he was, but thereby rising from the dead he proves it. Later on, this apostle said the same thing to Festus and Agrippa when he said that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. And he is the first that has risen from the dead. Lazarus was merely, as it were, resuscitated for a while and he died again. Jairus' daughter... The son of the woman of Nain were only resuscitated. They were not resurrected. Here is the first and the only one that has been resurrected. The first that should rise from the dead. He's Jesus. He's God. He's the Messiah. The resurrection proves it. He is the fulfillment of all the prophets. We are not waiting for him. He's come. Not only that. He said, I believe that he has likewise fulfilled the law. The law condemns us all. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But this Jesus is the Savior. How do I know it? Well, the resurrection again. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. What's it mean? It means this. What was happening on Calvary's hill was that God was putting your sins and mine upon his son. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He was made an offering for sin. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice of God. God smote him for our sins. As under the Old Testament dispensation, they put their hands on the head of the lamb and of the animal and then killed him and took his blood and presented it to God. Here is the lamb of God. Our sins were laid upon him. God smote him. He punished our sins in him. How do I know that? How do I know that God has done so and that I am forgiven? The answer is the resurrection. He has fulfilled the law of God. He has given a perfect obedience to it. He never sinned. He never failed. There was no blemish in him. And there he's taken the punishment. The law of God is answered, is satisfied. He is the fulfillment of the law of God. And therefore, says Paul, this is what I preach. That this is the Savior, the Messiah. My opponents believe in the coming of the Messiah who is going to deliver. I say that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has delivered. 
And that therefore there is only one way of salvation and one way of, to God. I confess unto thee that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. I used to be like that. I used to take my burnt offerings and sacrifices as they still do. I've stopped it. I have learned that not the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer can cleanse a conscience from dead works and cleanse and purify a man and admit him into the presence of God and make him a son of God. It cannot. I've ceased to believe this. I believe in this Jesus, this Nazarene. I believe that there is only one way of entering into the holiest of all. And that is by the blood of Jesus. They call it heresy. I call it life. I thought I knew God, but I didn't know God. There is but one way, he said, into the presence of God. It is by Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. That's it. Christ, Jesus, the Nazarene. The only way from man to God. The only way to be forgiven. The only way to be reconciled to God. The only way to be made a child of God. The only way to have new life and power. To lose the fear of death and the grave. And the resurrection and the judgment to come. Jesus. The Nazarene. It is all for him, through him. His body broken, his blood shed. For me and for my sins, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The sect of the Nazarenes. Jesus as Savior, dying for sins, risen for our justification. The only Savior, but a complete Savior for all who believe in him. That, my friends, is the Apostles' account of the Christian faith.
That is what makes a man a Christian. Not only to believe in God, not only to do good and to be good, not only to believe in the law and the prophets, not only to be religious, but to realize that you are a condemned and a hopeless sinner, and that nothing you may ever do will ever save you, but that Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to die for you, to save you, to reconcile you to God. Proof of it is given in his resurrection. To believe in him, just as you are, without one plea, with everything against you, simply believing his word, as Abraham believed it that Sarah should have a child, though she's over 90 and he's nearly 100. Nonsense! But he believed it. He didn't stagger. He believed hoping against hope. And you and I must believe in exactly the same way. Though you're a vile and a wretched sinner, you must believe that if you believe on Jesus as the Son of God and one who died for you and your sins to reconcile you to God, that you are forgiven this minute and are made a child of God and of a hope of everlasting bliss. Do you know what you believe? Do you know in whom you believe? Do you belong to the sect of the Nazarenes? And do you rejoice in it? Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.